Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Dearest listener, allow me to unveil a delightful secret. Snag Tights Craft Clothing that embraces every body shape. In a bold endeavor to revolutionize the fashion realm, Snag has triumphed. Permit me to draw your attention to the ingenious Chub Rub Shorts, crafted with moisture-wicking yarn, promising to keep you at least one degree cooler and utterly free from the discomfort of chafing. Free shipping on select orders. Thus, the more you snag, the more you save. Do not delay. Dear listener, experience the fashion revolution that is snag and visit snagtights.us today. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to Criminalia, where we've been exploring the lives and motivations of some of the most notorious lady poisoners in history. I'm Maria Tremarchi. And I'm Holly Fry. And as part of our wrap-up to this season of Poison, we invited award-winning journalist and poison expert Deborah Blum to chat with us, which she very kindly did. As we mentioned in our intro to the last episode, Deborah is the author of the 2018 New York Times notable book, The Poison Squad, as well as the New York Times bestseller, The Poisoner's Handbook. So there was no other guest that we could think of having. She had to be it. Yeah, the the absolute perfect one. And this is part two of our chat with Deborah. So if you missed part one, be sure to give that a listen. And now let's jump right back into our fun discussion with Deborah Blum, all about poison. 
Okay, so I'm going to take us back to arsenic for a minute. And you've said before that arsenic is your favorite poison. As it turns out, it may be my favorite poison as well after our first season of Griminalia. Uh, but I was wondering if you would share why you prefer it to something like strychnine, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, arsenic is still my favorite poison. Yeah. For some reason, when I say that, people think I sound creepy. I don't understand it because it's really, really a cool poison. I don't find you creepy when you say it at all. No, not a bit. <laughs> You're at the right audience here. <laughs> oh, I've been having such a good time, guys. Uh, arsenic is a naturally occurring element, and uh, it's about the 33rd most common element in the Earth's crust. So... And we started making use of it really early as a poison. Well, I mean, one of the things that's really, it's got so many interesting layers. And, and the things I like about it are both its wonderful uh, versatility as a homicidal poison, but also the fact that it's really dangerous uh, at, at, at the part per billion level. Now, there's almost no other poison that, you know, kind of sandbags you on two different levels the way arsenic is because there's an old famous saying in medicine that the dose makes the poison but with arsenic in fact that's not entirely true so it's really fascinating elemental arsenic is it loves to bond with other atoms and 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 when it bonds with carbon and, and becomes like something like an arsenic sugar it's not particularly dangerous to us um and in fact we eat a lot of arsenic sugars like arsenobentine uh, which comes out, which is in fish because there's a lot of arsenic in ocean water, and we just metabolize that away. They actually just to follow up on that for a minute. There was a really interesting study in which they were looking at whether pregnant women were eating enough fish as part of a healthy diet because people were avoiding fish because of mercury. Speaking of poisons, um, and they were able to tell that these women had cut out fish because there was no arsenobentine in their urine. Right. It just wasn't there. And so we know that we're exposed to these organic arsenic compounds all the time and they're a big nothing. Um, but inorganic arsenic, which, you know, in chemistry means without carbon is all, um, is really dangerous. And the worst form of it for us is um, arsenic trioxide, which if you think about what that means, it just means one atom of arsenic with uh, three. I mean, yeah, one atom of arsenic, three of oxygen, arsenic three oxygens, trioxide. And arsenic trioxide is, in fact, the poison that was called uh, the inheritance powder in the 19th century. And if you go and you look at the labels of pharmaceutical bottles for that, from that time, that's what you see, arsenic trioxide. And we just cannot handle that at all. It gets into your cells. It disrupts the, um, um, the part of the cell that is actually metabolizing provides energy, the me metabolic process in cells. And so it's a broad spectrum, really lethal poison. And not that much. I mean, not as poisonous, acutely poisonous as strychnine or cyanide. So you're talking, you know, in the teaspoon-ish and up kind of range. It'll kill you. Because it attacks every cell, it's really hard to diagnose, right? So people got, in the 19th century, got away with arsenic murders all the time. And plus that, it's odorless and tasteless. There's all these wonderful studies from the 19th century with scientists mixing it into vanilla pudding and other things and proving that, you know, you know, you can put it in anything and people can't tell, as opposed to something like strychnine or cyanide that's really bitter. 
And until uh, James Marsh, the chemist about mid 19th century came up with the first super simple test to try to detect arsenic in a body, you couldn't detect it. So, I mean, it's just such a storied, amazing poison from the Borgias into the early 20th century. And, And one of the poisoners, speaking of women poisoners in my book is an arsenic murderess, Fanny Creighton, right? And uh, and she does exactly the kind of things I'm describing. You know, she just gets it as a domestic supply and kills people that are annoying her in the way of money. Um, so, you know, even in the 20, early 20th century, when they did have some tools, you could still get away with an arsenic murder because it looked so much like a, a natural illness. And I just love the whole deviousness and the way <laughs> I really do it. So, I know, right? Like we had one woman this season who mixed it into eggnog and I was like, wow, that's yeah. just fantastic. So, I mean, don't you love that? Creative. Yes. yes. A, uh, it's a poison that allows poisoners who are devious to be so entirely creative in how they're going to deliver it, right? And mm-hmm. and at what dose are you going to slowly make the person sick or are you going to try to kill them over? I had a uh, arsenic mass murderer in uh, Poisoner's Handbook in which an, what they believe was an angry, vengeful baker who had been fired just mixed arsenic into the dough for the next day. And it was really, uh, I mean, people just died, right? So although you can do this gradually, it can just wipe you right out. And then finally, because it is naturally occurring, it turns up in drinking water and uh, in rice, right? Rice is the one way that really pulls arsenic. And at the part per billion level, it does real harm. So the EPA standard for arsenic in drinking water, inorganic, right, again, uh, is 10 parts per billion, which sounds like a big nothing, but the actual recommendation was three. And so the 10 parts per billion was a compromise, you know, in which utility systems were saying, we think we can, you know, without breaking the bank, get this down to 10, but three would be really impossible. But if you go over to countries where it took them a while to figure this out, like um, ta- uh, Taiwan, uh, back in the, I want to say about 30 years ago, had an outbreak of something called Blackfoot disease. They had arsenic in the drinking water at about up to one part per million. And it was so destructive to people's circulatory system that they developed gangrene in their feet, and which was called Blackfoot disease. And so we know from actual, these unfortunate, you know, human guinea pig examples of arsenic exposure that arsenic at this very small amount above 50 parts per billion can cause real harm, right? So it it is in many ways one of the most versatile um, and common poisons on the planet. And it serves as a reminder to all of us that we live on a poisonous planet, that we make use of those poisons in all kinds of interesting ways, right? And that we need to, like going back to my point about finding the tools, you know, where should I worry? Where should I in? Shouldn't. There's nothing better than arsenic. It's the world's greatest poison. <laughs> I absolutely came out of our first season thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, it definitely is kind of the star of the season yes. for sure. Uh, there's no sidestepping it. It shows up everywhere. No, it is the number one character. <laughs> uh, and I was glad that you brought up the Marsh test because, of course, uh, that as well as your work 
talking about kind of the the beginnings of forensic science makes me wonder how quickly the rise of forensic science stemmed the tide of homicidal poisonings. Oh, that's such a good question. So not as quickly as you might hope, right? I mean, the Marsh test was a really primitive test, right? And which worked most of the time, but not all of the time. And and they, then they later came up with refinements on that. Um, but even after the Marsh test uh, came into more popular use about mid-19th century, people did not know how to detect organic compounds, right? Organic poisons like cyanide or strychnine in a corpse. And, and in Poisoner's Handbook, I quote this uh, prosecutor from France saying, well, why doesn't everyone just kill with plant poisons then since nobody knows how to find them in a corpse, right? I mean, so you saw poisoners who are, like I said, really, poisoners are you know, the coldest of killers. I mean, they have to plot and plan. Everything, all poisoning is premeditated as opposed to almost any other weapon, right? And so you see this really interesting shift in the crime statistics in which poisoners shift to plant poisons because they're not detectable, right? And it's not till 30 to 40 years after the Marsh test that we figure out how to detect first nicotine in a corpse. And we take that on. So we're slowly building this knowledge base that then is overwhelmed by the tide of industrial chemistry, right, which arises in the late 19th century. And this is really the setup for the story I tell in Poisoner's Handbook, because I was surprised to realize what a very young science, uh, forensic science is, right? Um, You know, I'd always imagined, I mean, partly because, you know, you get this sense from... um, Uh, some of the early crime fiction in particular, that we were right on top of this and everyone was running tests. But in fact, uh, in the United States, the first forensic medicine program was started in the 1930s by Geller and Norris. And it was the first in the country, followed by one up in Boston shortly later. Um, There was no training in that. I mean, people didn't even use the term. They called it legal medicine, right? Um, So even the use of the word forensic science um, you know, really began in the 1930s, which is less than 100 years ago, in spite of, you know, the fact that we're building this knowledge, right? I mean, actually, forensic chemistry was one of the earliest branches of forensic science, right? People were not, I mean, the ability to understand um, uh, gunshots and gunshot spatter and bullet rifling is fairly new, uh, blood Tests are new, of course, DNA analysis much newer, right? So really, this slow beginning of figuring out the chemistry of poisons, the slow beginning was one of the first parts of forensic science, but the field itself didn't really start assembling itself until the 1930s. And and when you look at the Norris Gettler program, you see other people at the uh, New York City Medical Examiner's Office um, who are blood specialists or um, plant specialists or right all of these different parts that they're putting together to build a professional field. Um, so it's slow, and there's no wonder that you know you can find even arsenic poisoners into the 1930s because the field is really playing catch up with the killers themselves. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. 
And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash criminalia for 10% off your first order. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Your home should be your haven, and everyone wants to feel safe at home. If you travel a lot, it's really important that your home is secure when you're gone and that your pets are also safe. Simply Safe is advanced home security that puts you first. Simply Safe sent me a home security package, and I was really blown away by all the cameras and the quality of them. When I travel, I could check in on my cats anytime, day or night, and I sleep better knowing that once our alarm is set at night, I know that I'll be alerted if anyone tries to enter the house. Simply Safe has been named in U.S. News and World Report's best home security systems for five years running. It's also been ranked best customer service in home security by Newsweek. By partnering with Simply Safe, I've finally gotten real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Get an exclusive 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash criminalia. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. During the Right Rug Flooring Hello Summer Sale, you'll find savings throughout the store, all backed by the right price guarantee, including carpet with a lifetime stain warranty, only $159 installed with pad. That's right, $159 includes expert installation as soon as tomorrow. Visit rightrug.com, R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com to find a showroom near you or schedule a free in-home shopping appointment. Say hello to summer and save. Right Rug Flooring, right here, right now.
Dearest listener, in a world where fashion oft neglects the true diversity of the human form, Snag emerges as the beacon of inclusivity we so desperately need, renowned for their exquisite tights. Snag has triumphantly expanded its offerings to include garments that embrace everybody. Snag's creations are meticulously designed on a lifelike figures and refined across a spectrum of shapes before gracing our wardrobes. Clothing that not only promises, but delivers true comfort and fit, particularly of note other chub rub shorts ingeniously crafted with a moisture wicking yarn to ensure you remain at least one degree cooler and entirely free from the dreaded chafing perfect for every season these shorts can be discreetly worn under your clothes offering a delightful alternative to traditional cycling shorts whether you are at the gym hiking or simply enjoying a day in a skirt or dress they are your ideal companion remember dear listener the more you snag the more you save with free shipping on select Orders. Don't delay in experiencing the fashion revolution that is snag at snagtights.us. Welcome back to Criminalia. Do you happen to have a favorite story from uh, the development of forensic science as it relates to poison? Or, or do you really kind of like a lot of them? <laughs> <laughs> I really like a lot of them. I mean... Um, so one of my other favorite poisons, because it's so efficient, is carbon monoxide. And I actually have two carbon monoxide chapters in Poisoner's Handbook um, to, because it you know plays into so many different aspects. Um, but uh, one of the carbon monoxide chapters involves this extremely failed murder. I, I guess because it makes me laugh, I like this story. Um, <laughs> This extremely, extremely frustrating and, and somewhat incompetent murder syndicate that forms in the Bronx in um, the early 1930s, sort of toward the end of Prohibition, in which they, this group of, I mean, I wouldn't call them ne'er-do-wells, but definitely shady characters who are, you know, marginally getting along, come up with a scheme to... Um, ensure the life of a alcoholic derelict it kind of floats through the speakeasy that one of them owns and then uh take out insurance policies on him and then have him die you know with various different schemes that they come up with and cash in and the money and so they pick this irish alcoholic drifter mike malloy and Mike Malloy came to be known in the New York press as Mike the Durable, which will tell you why I think this is so funny, because they try all of these different ways to kill him, you know, poison alcohol and running over him with a cab and pouring cold water on him. And I shouldn't laugh, but it is so ridiculous. He's hardy. <laughs> right. Putting him out soaked in water on a in a park in February, hoping he'll get pneumonia. And, and none of it works. He just, you know, bounces back from every single attempt until they finally kill him. I won't give away the whole why and where with carbon monoxide and carbon monoxide is, is such an efficient killer, right? It works so amazingly well. It has this fabulous chemical reaction with your blood in which it just shoves oxygen out of your blood in a kind of muscle man kind of way. Speaking of my tendency to animate poisons and, and, <laughs> and right. And so, and Gettler had really looked at, um, 
all of these different issues with carbon monoxide, in part because there had been a uh, charge, uh, a murder charge against someone who actually hadn't killed someone with carbon monoxide, and he was able to figure that out. And and there were people who tried to fake um, murders, pretending that, that there had been like a carbon monoxide leak, which and he was able to sort that out. So carbon monoxide is so interesting because it's so good at what it does. And because you, when you look at how they figured it out, it's got all these amazing stories like Mike Malloy and, you know, a guy who tried to kill his wife and, um, and was caught through chemistry. And so I'm especially fond of that as well. Just the whole fabulous way that you see science peel apart this long time poison um, and provide us with tools to protect ourselves against it. So carbon monoxide is odorless, which makes it like arsenic really dangerous. It's leaking into your room, but you don't smell anything, right? You just get sleepy. Um, so we add a compound chloropicron to it now. So that if, for instance, you know, the gas went off on your burner on your stove and you had a seep of gas, you would you smell that weird, slightly acrid smell. But that's the chloropicrin. That's not the carbon monoxide. Right. And so we learn from these. It's also an example of what we've learned and done better in a public health sense. So, yeah, that's another I like them all, actually. (laughs) (laughs) She loves all the poison. I really do. They're so fascinating. And, you know, I'll say to people, I mean, here I am, like, you know, a walking ball of chemicals, inhaling them and drinking them every day. And most of them don't do you any harm. So the ones that do chemically are really clever. They unlock different locks in your body. They take advantage of... Um, you know, natural symptom, natural systems in an interesting way. Radium deposits to your bones because the body processes it like calcium. Thallium is distributed by potassium channels because the body potassium, you know, distributes it like potassium. And and the way that poisons can take advantage of the systems that mostly you know protect our health, they're just really interesting devious chemical compounds and. And in a way that probably does make me sound creepy, uh, there's a part of me that steps back and admires deviousness, right? (laughs) (laughs) Related to everyone being made of chemicals, I was recently researching an incident in 1660s Paris, which, of course, there was that big debate going on in the French Academy over whether or not it should be allowed for doctors to treat people using chemical means. And the whole time I'm reading it, I'm like, they're, they're already doing it. They just don't know to call it a chemical. Uh, so I was, I was glad you mentioned it. Um, as we have worked our way through our list of poisonings this season, of course, we've been kind of picking apart the ways that some of these stories have been told over the years and then uh, comparing that to the historical record to see whether there's really support for it. And sometimes there's not. There is clearly a case where someone has gotten this reputation when they maybe did not deserve it. Um, have you been surprised by any of the instances of poisonings that you've studied over the years, either because it turned out poison was not the case or just the way it was it was handled or discussed or characterized was a little bit surprising? You know, one of the things I tackled in Poisoner's Handbook was people being falsely accused of poisoning, right? So there's a mercury poisoner who did not poison his wife, um, but was accused of it publicly. Um, There was, as I said, a a man who was accused of uh, poisoning his 
uh, one of his neighbors and uh, he and that turned out to be an accidental death and so one of the points you raise here that i that from my perspective is really important is that you know investigations that find innocence are just as important as investigations that find guilt and you know to we should not just assume that the criminal justice system is there to you know send people to prison or, or send them to execution it's also there in a justice sense to take these cases apart and show when people weren't guilty or were or the story doesn't hold up and and in some cases it it genuinely doesn't i have also thought you know about the sort of mythology we built around certain poisons and how misleading that can be and and one of those is of course uh, ricin which was a big hero of breaking bad as you know everyone's favorite lethal poison and gave people the impression, and I wrote about this too over at Wired, but gave people the impression that, man, they just had to, you know, mess around with castor beans or whatever and and gin up a little ricin and they could take out anyone they didn't know without at all understanding how ricin works. And the fact that it's actually lethal in a very narrow targeted sense, right? And just really insane uses of it. And of course, ricin powder since when if you are you know an espionage agent which is where the really famous rice and killings come from um, and you carefully inject it of course it's going to kill you but the other methods like you know rice and pizzas are really nearly as dangerous as people might thought so people partly through you know popular uh shows like breaking bad get these ideas about poisons and how they work and and then use them and and that also happened in it interesting way, although it is um, unexpectedly dangerous. There was one of these shows in which someone uses Visine to make someone sick at a wedding party, the wedding, um, and Visine is really dangerous if you swallow it, right? And so there was then this rash of Visine poisonings, right? So I think the other part of this story is that when we're telling poison stories, and putting that information out, you know, you know, we're trying not to instruct people on how to poison other people, right? Right. <laughs> right? Um, exactly. But but you need to be aware that there are always going to be people who are going to read this. Um, and Poisoner's Handbook actually, and this was really appalling to me, I should tell you. Uh, ended up in a criminal trial of a guy in, um, he was in the Navy, I think, down in San Diego, and he tried to kill his wife with thallium. People wrote me about this. When they did the criminal trial, the one book he had on his phone was Poisoner's Handbook. So when you look at that chapter, it talks a lot about the fact that it's certainly in the 1930s, this was a hard to detect poison. Right. I mean, that's a 19. That's that's science <laughs> in the 1930s. This guy clearly took it into the 21st century thinking he could get away with it. And he got the dose completely wrong. Right. And so he you know, his wife survived and he went to prison. But and literally any time I was at a party and people would say, what are you working on? I say, oh, I'm working on a book about, you know, something related to poison. And people would always say to me, almost every party, they said, well, how would you poison someone? <laughs> and I said to my editor at Penguin, I'm like, this is starting to really 
make me nervous. And she said, I absolutely forbid you to ever tell anyone how to poison anyone. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I was really careful in the book, but people, but it is a reminder that when you write about these things, or like in the case of Breaking Bad, when you kind of glorify a a particular poison, um, you can drive this kind of activity. And so to be careful. That is a fascinating aspect. I had not, I mean, we think about it and we joke about how Maria and I, should anyone ever look at our search history, are going to oh, be yeah. like, hmm. Right. No, I mean, no, I, why I, are I, you asking how much arsenic it takes to kill a 200 pound man? Right, exactly. exactly. Um, <laughs> and I've Googled it more than once, you know? So like, <laughs> I, always, I always thought to myself, there was a point where I thought, if the FBI ever looked at my search history, I feel the same exact way. <laughs> I was like, entirely <laughs> homicidal, right? <laughs> So you are, as we mentioned at the top, the director of the Night Science Journalism Program. Uh, I'm wondering what advice you give to up-and-coming journalists about writing on the subject of historical science. And it may be don't tell people how to poison people, but I bet there are other lessons also. Oh, I think that's a great question. And, you know, and I do when I'm talking to uh, our fellows or when I'm, you know, talking to other journalism groups, particularly talk about the uh, importance of writing about science history. And so going back to when I got my grad degree at Wisconsin, my advisor had a joint appointment in journalism and wildlife biology. And when I went there, he said to me, you have to study history of science. And and I had never occurred to me. I worked for newspapers for five years. I was interested in, you know, modern environmental toxicology. And um, I'm like, huh? And he said, the most important thing about understanding the history of what you cover is that you'll that people will not be able to shine you on. You know, that you're going to interview a scientist who will say, I'm the first person who ever thought of this. And you'll know that's not true because you actually know something about the history of the field. So one of the things I do when I am talking to journalists is I talk not only about my, you know, philosophical idea that we're always smarter if we know how we got here, but about the importance of understanding the history of the field, because when you do understand that, you really can put what's going on in context, right? And and, and there's so many examples of that beyond um, poison. You know, the obvious example today is if you actually take a look at some of the things that arose in the 1918 influenza pandemic, um, they're predictive of some of the things we're going through here. They obviously uh, were a long way from a flu shot at that point, but mask wearing, social distancing, the hostile response to that, the the second wave of that, right? There's just so much that you can look and say to yourself, what have we learned and what mistakes are we repeating and how could we be smarter about this? And so, you know, I remind people all the time that um, there's all these amazing facts from history that we've forgotten. Um, If you go into an archive, one of the books I did was on the history of the idea that love matters, which in science, right? Going through this arc from the early 20th century in in which scientists argued that love didn't exist and that relationships uh, between, say, mother and child to just be called proximity. 
to the period where we say, I mean, it was crazy, to, to the other side of that paradigm shift in which we say love is, you know, we need a solid foundation of love and affection in healthy human development. And when I was doing that, I went to the archives of the History of American Psychology, uh, which are in Akron, Ohio. In that archive, as I was researching this changing idea, I found so many scientists who had been famous in their time who are forgotten who have made discoveries about how we think and how we relate to each other, that if we just remembered them, if we just had that history of time, we wouldn't be making some of these mistakes again. They, I mean, in the 1930s, they were actually looking at the connection between affection and intelligence and the importance of right having that solid family background in the development of how you think and how you thrive in intellectual settings i mean i when i read it i just thought oh i wish right that we had not just put that into some archive right but continued to keep that at the forefront of the conversation so history makes us so much smarter about poisons, right? But about the world we live in ourselves. And, and you know, the last thing I'll say about that is it's really interesting. You know, I, I don't know if it's a failure of the way we teach history in the K-12 system, but once you get into like his, into history, you, you just find yourself going, this is such an amazing story of who we are. And I would like everyone to think that way. On our show normally, at the end of every episode, we do a segment called What's Your Poison, where we make a cocktail that is themed to the um, the subject at hand. <laughs> so I do not know if you are a drinker or not, but if you are or if you're not, uh, what's your poison? What's your favorite beverage? Oh, I'm like a journalist. I've been drinking in newsrooms. <laughs> <laughs> For decades. Um, so I really love some of the 1920s cocktails. Um, and, and in fact, um, uh, while I was working on Poisoner's Handbook, I, I it like was trying to drink my way through the famous cocktails of the 1920s. And so I thought to myself, I'm really becoming an alcoholic here. Um, and uh, because they were really interesting cocktails, because a lot of some of them were designed to cover up the taste of ethyl, you know, methyl alcohol and bootleg uh, bathtub gin and some of the really horrible tasting, you know, sort of homebrews of the 1920s. So all different kinds of flavoring. So my two favorite cocktails from that period are um, a sidecar and the bee's knees, which is a fairly simple cocktail of fresh lemon juice and gin and uh, honey or a simple syrup, syrup, and you can add some different herbs to that. And I highly recommend them. They're wonderful cocktails. These knees sound lovely. <laughs> I love it. Deborah. we can never thank you enough for spending all this time with us. Oh, that's so nice of you guys. I mean, this was really fun for me. And you asked such smart, Deborah. take a minute and think questions. I really enjoyed it. It was really fun for us, too. Yes. You guys take care out there. You, you too. too. Thank, Thank you, you again so much. so much, Deborah. It's almost impossible to say how much we want to thank Deborah Blum for joining us and spending a ton of time just chatting about poison and poison and more poison. <laughs> <laughs> and not even just arsenic, 
was poison. Right. It, it was a little bit of like an arsenic fan club. It was. But uh, I, we also cannot recommend her books highly enough if you have not read them. Uh, as is completely obvious from listening to her talk, she is so knowledgeable and so good at talking about science in a way that is accessible for non-scientists and really, really compelling. Highly recommend. So we do have one uh, What's Your Poison following this interview that I'm going to throw over to Holly. Yeah. So uh, as you as you know, we asked Deborah what her favorite cocktails were. If you listened last week, we, you know you, you know we did a sidecar. And this time I'm doing a bee's knees. Similar to the sidecar, you'll see recipes for bee's knees that are all pretty similar, but with slightly different variations in amounts of uh, of each particular component. So uh, you'll see anywhere from one and a half to the most I saw was two and a half ounces of gin. That seems like an awful lot to me. I would hit right around two. Um, half an ounce to an ounce of lemon juice. Three quarters is where I tend to land. And then most call for about a half ounce of honey syrup. I like a whole ounce of honey syrup because it takes the edge off the gin a little bit for me. I'm not a gin person. I'm not either. I was wondering when this came up, I was trying to think if I had had bee's knees before, but because it's gin, it is highly unlikely that I have tried right. one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have had them before and I, I, it's one of those things I'm always like, I'm going to have that. It sounds fun. And then I'm like, why did I order this? It's not really my drink there. I mean, which is no shade at all to any bartender that's ever made one. It's just gin is not, I'm, I have one of those palates to whom gin tastes very much like I'm chewing on pine bark. Um, a good gin will help that, but mm-hmm. even so I still get pine flavor. So, uh, that's last time I talked about how you can, kind of switch things up this is such a simple recipe um that for me it's just becomes a matter of like throttling the amount of honey syrup that's in it (laughs) if you don't have you know uh if you did not know honey syrup is one of the easiest things on earth to make it is just like a simple syrup it's one part honey to one part water you throw it in a saucepan and let it just reach a boil so it's completely easy to um for the the sugar and the honey to dissolve and then you let it cool off and you're golden i do very small amounts when i make batches of honey syrup like literally a third of a cup to a third of a cup because i just don't use it in that much stuff i mean it doesn't it really doesn't come up a lot does it no (laughs) but then it's one of those things that once you have it on hand you'll just start throwing it in cocktails and then discovering because one of the things it really does is it like warms it up. It just gives it this nice extra body and it, it, um, it does take the edge off of things. And if there are harsh flavors in your, your spirits, it will help kind of soothe those. Uh, and so for me, it's just a matter of adding that bit of honey to make this a yummier drink. So that is the bee's knees. And again, uh, we cannot say thanks enough to Deborah. So we will raise a bee's knees in her honor. <laughs> I'll drink the gin just for it. <laughs> right? Absolutely. And we also want to make sure that we thank you, our listeners, for listening this season. Our next and last episode on Lady Poisoners is going to be our review of the whole season. But uh, do not fret. We're going right into a season two. So <laughs> it won't be about Lady Poisoners. It'll be about stalkers instead. But we're going to we're gonna keep right on going. And so in that next episode, we are going to cover some of our favorite episodes from the season, as well as our favorite cocktails that we've had this time around. Thank you again for listening. We can't wait to meet you back here next week. 
Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.